Today's episode of the Hot 4 podcast is proudly sponsored by Brew Broker, the marketplace for the brewing industry. With over 500 traders already on board, Brew Broker will find you buyers for your spare capacity or the perfect brewery to create, contract or white label a beer. Join today for free at brewbroker.com. That's spelt B-R-E-W-B-R-O-K-E-R.com. Create a supplier profile to fill capacity or sign up as a buyer to start your tender with our easy-to-use platform. This is Nick Law and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hotforward.beer is a podcast and website dedicated to the beer industry, supporting budding beer entrepreneurs by gaining insights from experienced brewers and folk within the craft beer industry. So grab a glass, pour yourself a beer, and let's get into this week's episode. Hello friends and welcome to another Hot 4 podcast. How's it going this week? Uh, my week's going really well, considering that I barely had any sleep because it's so bloody hot. Um, because, get this, I am now officially a member of the Guild of British Beer Writers. Come on! Boop, boop. Um, I am very excited about that. I've never been part of a guild before. I feel feel great um so huge thank you to matthew curtis for seconding my application uh, big shout out to him and yeah you know it's 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 good because obviously i'm doing this podcast and oh, i've kind of entered that as a broadcaster so yeah another another late night recording podcast uh, apologies that it's a little bit late this week it's been quite busy um did have an episode up my sleeve ready to announce something but couldn't quite get it out there in time so having to switch things around at the last minute so that there you go these things happen so um how are you how are your sales going this week have you have you had a good sales week um perhaps your sales have been on the the lower end this week considering it's summer um sales is one of those things like you either love or hate uh, th- there's not much middle ground and it's not about having the gift of the gab either sales doesn't have a silver bullet approach or it doesn't lend itself to a particular personality type either. It simply comes down to building relationships. Um, now, I wonder who here listening to this can resonate with the following scripts. Are you ready? Okay. Hello, Fox Tavern. Hi. Yeah, it's uh, it's Jeff from Big Hot Brewery. How's it going? Now, we all know what the landlord's thinking. He's thinking, oh. Fucking hell, it's the seventh call this morning from a brewery and he's too polite to say anything because, well, he's English. And we also know that the brewer knows a little bit about selling. Not much, but just a little bit. Enough to be asking open-ended questions. So the landlord says, yeah, not bad. You? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm good, thanks. So, uh, whew, it's hot today, isn't it? Mm, yeah, yeah, very hot. Great, great, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh... How are things at the Fox Tavern? Now, the brewer sets up the shot with the next question, not leaving much time for the landlord to respond. Oh, yeah, and uh, how's your cell looking these days? Now, we all know what's coming. Depending on how brash the brewer is will determine whether he or she asks the question. A little bit like an awkward teenager building up to that momentous occasion where he's going to ask the hottest girl of the class out on a date. It's painful to watch, but it's almost ritualistic. So, uh, what did he be of this week? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good, thanks, this week, says landlord. Depending on how amenable the landlord is, they may spare the brewer the shame of the flat rejection and offer them a shred of hope, a lifeline in a turbulent sea of beer and say, oh, yeah, phone me again next week and let me know what you've got. Now, we all know this is code for, I probably won't buy anything from you, but I'm too nice to come out and just say it. Now, the landlord goes back to clearing his lines, waiting for the next encounter, and the brewer comes away dejected, but lives to fight another day. Now, for those of you running a brewery, we've all had encounters like this. Now, I've, I've got a lot to say about sales. Sales are the lifeblood of any business. Sales are the economic engine behind your brewery, your bar, your business, whatever it might be. Without making sales, simply, you've got an expensive hobby. 
Yet not everyone knows how to sell well. Selling is a skill and it can be mastered. Good effective selling is all about building relationships. People buy from people. If you can't build relationships, then you can't sell. I've seen too many brewers fall into the trap of Monday morning sales calls and this attitude of, if you build it, they will come. But for the most part, it doesn't work. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it at all, because let's face it, you do make sales from those calls, but it's far more effective to get off the phone, get off your ass, and actually go down to a pub or a bar or a bottle shop and get to know them personally and find out what makes them tick. So for the podcast this week, I wanted to kind of dive into what it's like from a buyer's perspective. And I caught up with Michael Heap, who runs Chapter One in Bath recently, to chat all about running a bar from the landlord's perspective and about everything that entails, including sales, to help us understand what it's like from their side of the bar. If you like the Hot Forward podcast, then check out hotforward.beer for more episodes like this one. Follow us on social media at hotforward.beers. Leave a review on iTunes. Thank you for everyone who's done that so far. It helps us go up the rankings and all that stuff. And there are loads of great beer podcasts out there. Obviously, we'd like ours to be really up there on on the ratings. So uh, leave us a review because that helps. And share this podcast with some of your friends and colleagues in the industry. And then finally, find out what Hot Forward can do for you by visiting our website, again, which is hotforward.beer. And perhaps we can offer you some business coaching or sales training to help you get ahead in your beer business. So let's crack open a nice cold beer and catch up with Michael Heap from Chapter One in Bath or Bath, depending on where you're from. So today on the Hotford podcast, we are talking all about setting up your own bar and I'm joined by Michael Heap of Chapter One based in Bath or, or Bath, as uh, they call it down uh, there, depending, right? Depending on where you come from. <laughs> well, Hi, Nick, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I'm, I'm from Sheffield, so it's, it's, it's Bath <laughs> up here, but um, yes, Bath. So yeah, I'm all right, thanks. How are you? Yeah, no, it's uh, all good. We're just coming up on our third birthday. Um, we've been here, here doing this thing, the uh, road less travelled for about three years. Um, we run a completely independent free house here in Bath. Um, so for us, that means there is uh, nothing owned by the large multinational breweries or distillery companies. Mm. Um, and for us, that's really quite important because we're a small independent business and we really want to help other small independent businesses. Right, I see. So n- none of the lines, none of the keg equipment, which is no, the main all of that it. is all, all of that was installed by us. In fact, it was installed by me rather than anyone else. So, oh wow! Okay. Um, it's sort of a hand hand built system uh, using all kind of standard pub equipment, but we own it all, we manage it all, and uh, yeah, all of that stuff is is on us really. So, did you have any bar experience before? Like when you say, well, I've I've, I've run bars at festivals before. Right. Um, so I'm. Um, used to the sort of the, the, that, that side of things but um as far as actually physically building a bar it's our bricks first bricks and mortar mm. uh, operation right so you had a vague idea as to what what equipment you needed rather just going in completely blind and yeah no very much so i also come from a home brewing background as well so setting up a kegerator or whatever is right. is not necessarily a problem yeah awesome so i mean why don't you give our listeners a bit of background um like what why why did you decide to start a bar why does anyone decide to start a bar (laughs) why does anyone start to decide to start a bar well it's a good question um we both come from an it background uh but not necessarily in that sort of uh, programmer or various different other aspects kind of ancillary sides of the industry my wife emma who i run chapter one with um came from to data connectivity from hedge funds, but in a previous life of hers, she'd run conferences and events. Uh, I come from a broadcast IT background, so basically running uh, all the servers and video invest and all that kind of stuff for uh, 24-hour news channels. Mm. Um, and we got to a point in our lives that uh, you know, some people call it a midlife crisis. If uh, in the technology world you call it a pivot where you decide <laughs> to change direction in uh, in what you're doing and uh, I made a joke one day uh, do you fancy running away fancy running away and buying a pub and uh, we both came back to each other about three weeks later going I've really been thinking about that <laughs> um, that idea about running away and joining a pub so it, we went and did it wow amazing so I mean 
what makes Chapter One different to some of the other micropubs locally? I mean, I, mean, I don't know how many micropubs Bath has. Um... Uh, Bath doesn't really have any micropubs in that sort of traditional aspect. Um, this pub that we're in is actually a, has been a pub since seventeen seventy something or other. Wow! Uh, so it's been around for a while. Um, it used to be way back when owned by um, the Bavarian. Uh, a beer company down in Shepton Mallet. Mm. It got transferred over to um, a brewery that was over in uh, uh, over locally. And then when they went bankrupt in the 1990s and early 2000s, it was bought by a, a group of private people with a sitting tenant in it who they thought were gonna, he, they were going to carry on for 20 years, but then quit out of it after two years. They tried to run it uh, for a couple of years with their own people. That didn't work. They got some other tenants in that didn't work so by the time we'd seen it and um and actually made an offer on it it'd been empty for about six months right i see uh so and it actually had a flood in that period so when we took the pub on it was like literally gut the building rewire replumb it uh and put it all back together again goodness so i mean because i read on your website you don't just stock um beers there do you do whiskies and all sorts of things yeah we we do we do uh, we do what any normal pub would do really i mean everything from uh whiskies uh gins um we have uh, eight wines on uh we have six beer taps on at any given moment in time as well so mm. what do you think the biggest learning curves were you for in starting a bar because i mean obviously you'd had a bit of experience doing events and things but it's not quite the same kettle of fish is it no it's, it's not and we we also have a um a policy that we only ever buy one keg and change of anything so um of our of, of, of our of our tap list uh we'll probably do let's say 12 cakes 12 cakes a weekend, that'll be 12 different beers on all weekend. Mm. So our, our, uh, the biggest thing is try, initially was trying to work out what we were going to stock. So we were, we started when we opened, we were, we didn't have a lager line on, but that changed pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so and so lager end up, ends up making kind of probably 30% of our sales. Yeah. Um, so we had to adjust what our expectation was on that side of things. Um, it being the West Country, we've always got to have a great cider on. Um, it, again, it was about learning those dynamics. Um, also, the other thing is actually realising quite how social the beer industry is. Mm. Um, it's very much person-based. Um, things happen in their own time as well. Um, I come from an environment where uh, beyond just in time, I mean, if things went wrong on uh, wrong with the technological side of TV, you'd be in for fines to Ofcom or whoever else for hundreds of thousands of pounds, whereas turning up a day late with a keg and not telling anyone about it just seems to be kind of par for the course. Right. <laughs> not that it's a criticism, but it's just a different a different flow and a different way of life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, we get a lot of listeners from a variety of backgrounds uh i mean everything from seasoned brewers to just sort of beer drinkers that want to get involved in the industry what for, for anyone out there listening to this thinking oh you know i really want to enter the realms of hospitality and st- start my own establishment um i mean wh- where should they start you know i think in our heads we often imagine it being a little bit like the bar and cheers uh it's Simultaneously, nothing like the bar inches, and exactly like the uh, <laughs> bar inches. Um, first of all, I mean, it's interesting you the word, use the word hospitality, and I, this is something I get sort of wound up by quite a lot whenever I go out for a drink. You go out to a pub or a bar or a hotel or somewhere else that has that is traditionally hospitality, and you're not met with a smile. You're not met with a hi, how you're doing. Mm. If you don't want to be in hospital, if you don't want to be hospitable, what are you doing in the hospitality industry? It's, yeah. It, Running a pub is hard work. It's 24-7. Uh, you've got to be available at uh, to, for the drayman at 9 o'clock in the morning, plus you're also cleaning the loos at 1 o'clock in the morning. So it, it, if you think it, it, it's, a, it's an easy go, it's not. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of hard work. It's time-consuming. But it's also a huge amount of fun. Uh, you meet some of the strangest people you've ever met. You'll build some of the greatest uh, friendships you've ever, you, you've ever had. Yeah. Um, in other ways, it's also quite interesting. If you, if I said to you, you're going to go and run a business uh, that essentially doesn't have any of the hard work of sales involved. If if you're if you come from a sort of traditional kind of corporate side of things, you've got salespeople who have to go out and convince people that they want to buy your product. Yep. You've got people coming through your door wanting to buy your product. So. There is no sales involved. They've already committed to buying a beer, but by the time they walk through your door, it's just which one. 
Right. That's um, super interesting. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, you're totally right. Because um, one of the things I want to ask you was um, when when you're choosing beers and um, to, to, to purchase from breweries, I mean, I would imagine you get every brewery in their granny phone up on a Monday trying to sell you their beer. Am, am, am I right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's mostly via email these days. I mean, we try and fend off the phone calls because inevitably they come at the exactly the wrong time. Right. Um, so we say to all of our guys, send us a send us your list on Monday or Tuesday, um, and we'll we'll have a look and we'll we'll, we'll do the purchasing. Um, so we basically have, uh, I mean, we have six taps on any given time. We'll have a lager. We'll have a cider. They just kind of self decide themselves. Uh, we'll have a pale ale line. We we've got an IPA line. Uh, we have a. Um, essentially the stout line and we'll have what we call our other which will be 10 in the winter we'll go from dark ambers browns that sort of thing in the summer it becomes um saison and advices and that sort of thing mm. so from that um with that in mind we tend to look at our list and try and pull out sort of a couple of cakes that both price-wise uh meet our margins so we essentially we found we have a hard limit on how much people are willing to spend on a pint yeah and no matter how cool and how hip a beer is people aren't willing to go a certain price point i mean i was browsing through one of our lists yesterday and the beer that came up was uh, i think it was 347 pounds uh for a 20 liter keg whoa um <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, this is a, a very hip Scandinavian brewery that is very kind of in the mode at the moment. But I can't make that work. Yeah, I, uh, it's eleven pounds before as it comes to the door, excluding VAT mm. on on a pint. So by the time I put my margin, that works out about a thirty quid pint. Oh my goodness, that's insane! Uh, so uh, exactly. So no matter how you do the maths, you have to kind of you've got a price point, you've got a hit for your for your customer. So you weigh up the prices and you weigh up who they're from what you can get your hands on within that bracket and you end up with kind of a spread coming out at the end. Um, what advice would you give to brewers and distributors out there from your perspective um, when it comes to trying to sell their beer to you? Maybe for the first time, if they're approaching you as a new new brewery or distributor, trying to get their products on your bar. I'd say set up a meeting with us, come and see us, come and see who we are, what our space is like, uh, and to bring samples. Um, the... The only thing I would say is don't come unannounced. Uh, I've, I've, I've lost count of how many people have come during our service hours to come and try and talk to us. But, of course, we're trying to run a pub at the same time. Yeah. If I, if I, I don't come to the brewery and uh, decide to have a discussion with you while you're trying to mash in. So <laughs> the, the, the flip side is, is also true. Yeah. Do you think um, a lot of maybe smaller brewers out there just don't have the right sort of sales skills when it comes to trying to get into places. And um, sales is uh, interesting and 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 and, and tricky. Um, in a lot of circumstances, your beer your beer is going to sell itself. Mm. If you've got a product that's great, uh, it will get a reputation, and people will come and try and find you. Um, again, the flip side is if you're not getting out there for enough people to actually taste, then how do you ever get a good reputation? Yep. So I suppose the thing is, is 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 being sure enough in your product, and then going and talking to people about stocking your product. Mm. Um, and that's not going to be sight unseen in a lot of circumstances. So again, getting people to sample your product um, on on an ongoing basis, distributors are fantastic. You may take a bit of a hit on your margin uh, because of that, but you, it's going to get out get out there and get seen by more people outside your area. What sort of things would put you off of buying particular beers from breweries? Okay, um, there's, a, there's a couple of examples, and again, I'm not going to mention breweries, but we had a uh, so someone turn up on a Friday night um, to the pub to try and do us a sale to try and do us a sales um, uh, job, unarranged, unannounced. So they turned up kind of let's say five seven o'clock on a Friday night. Mm. So we were at full flow. Yeah. Um, and they'd already been drinking by the time they turned up. Right. So, Goodness. suffice to say, I've never, I've never bought their product. Mm. Um, it, all, it also didn't help that their reput their brewery came with a certain reputation that we weren't necessarily keen to be involved with. Yeah. Do you think that? Do you ever feel 
badgered by uh, breweries and distributors when it comes to them selling products to you? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, people will will always give you a call on Monday and Tuesday if they haven't fulfilled their their sales quota, and it certainly gets to a point where um, if you're a small brewer and you've got one or two people, there's a certain sales aspect. But once you start to get to about four or five salespeople that are employed in house and you're employing quotas, you will tend to find yourself on as a pub find yourself on a list that you're getting called especially if you haven't ordered from them or you told you don't like their beer, you're still on their CRM, the customer relationship mm. uh, management software, that you will get calls on an ad hoc basis that you're going, and it'll be like a Wednesday afternoon, and I'm going like, I know why you're calling me. is because you haven't sold any beer this week. Yeah. So do you think, wh- when should a brewer take the hint? <laughs> it's almost like dating, isn't it? <laughs> but when, yes. when, when should a brewery take the hint that actually... There's a couple of, there's a couple of breweries that um, still haven't got the hint. Um, oh, dear. I, w- I would guess after a couple of sales calls, uh, probably about three or four, uh, the approaches via email or whatever else is probably the amount that you need to, you need to start taking a hint that you're not that popular. Do you, do you actually think then it just comes down to their reputation and, and how popular they are, whether whether they'll get in at a place? I mean, or... the, the bottom line, if, we get a, if we're looking at a list of beers that have come in from a distributor and there's a couple of people that we don't, uh, that we don't know who they are, we jump onto the same ratings uh, sites as all the customers do to see what they – to get a quick primer on what the beers are. Right. It's the thing about Beer Advocate and, um, and, all, and all, all the – all the, all the other and untapped and all the rest of it is that they're crowd they're crowdfunded sources and we can have a good guess that if the beer is two stars or one star it's not going to be very good yeah definitely it, it, it's really going to have to be three upwards um and i know that the unicorn beers skew all the ratings and all the rest of it but uh, that i mean classic case of that is that if you look at um i don't know uh, west uh, west Fletcher and 12 and uh, st uh, st bernard's 12 they're essentially exactly the same beer one is the top of the list and the other one's about 50 it's the same region the same water the same yeast and essentially the same brewery uh less than five miles apart mm. but because one you can't get your hands on and the other one's in every supermarket uh one is rated far higher than the other yeah Wow, I guess um, Untapped and all those things. I, I loved how you call it unicorn beers. That's so funny. That's 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 so accurate, though, isn't it? Um, I, I guess if it must be hard for certain breweries if, if people like selves are going off something like Untapped or beer. Well, it, 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 it's not our only. Uh, it, it's one of the many things we look at. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we, we we also have a lot of friends in the beer business, so we'll go. What do you think about X, Y, and Z? Um, customers will come into us and say, "I've had this really good beer. Can you look at trying to get it in?" I went to this brewery X, Y, and Z. So all of that kind of stacks up in our heads, mm. uh, and it's also what we can what we can actually get. So I mean, if you're after a kind of like microbrewery based based in Perthshire, we're never going to be able to get hold of that because yeah. there's just no way of getting it from there to us. Yeah. Absolutely. So m- moving on from sort of sales and breweries trying to sell beers to you, why do you think there's a new wave of pubs emerging across the UK with like micro pubs opening left, right and centre whilst many traditional pubs and alehouses are closing their doors? Okay, so you have to look at what the offering is for a start. Um, if you think about your traditional... Uh, your, your, your traditional boozer, your, your, the place that's been around for 150 years, belongs to a brewery, is very kind of traditionally heavy wood, dark, um, has a reputation. Mm. It, what, what you, it, it's comforting for some people because they know, know what they're going to get. And that's very much the sort of image of a Victorian parlour. Yeah. Um, and it comes with all of that. I don't think it's where a lot of uh, where a number of people, certainly younger people, want to hang out. I yep. mean, I don't know about you, but uh, my vision of where I want to spend my free time is not in a Victorian parlour. Mm. Um, also, what I want to drink is not necessarily, I don't know, um, best bitter from um, the, from the large family brewery that's been the same for sixty five years. Yeah. Definitely. I want something that's bright, hot forward. Um, I want a cool stuff that I can engage with. Um, and again, this comes back to our question about hospitality earlier. Because a number of people that work for to work in traditional pubs see it as a part-time gig or they're only there for the summer, they're not committing to the customer base. They're, they're, they're not involved with the community aspect of the side, the side of the pub. Mm. 
Um, so there's that side. There's also the kind of what I tend to refer to as the Alco barns. I mean, you're aware. Of, I mean, they're sort of like I'm again not going to mention any trade names, but it, sort of every city high street has one of these. There's about two or three different company companies that run them, yep. where it, it's about volume sales mm. and. It's a bit like uh, selling a second-hand car. You can either put a decent margin on one and sell two second-hand cars a week, or you can have a really thin margin and try and sell 30 cars a week yeah. to get the same. And the more you tend towards that volume side of things, the more you get depersonalized, the more the less of a relationship you, you have with a customer. It becomes essentially transactional. The person stood behind the bar is there to sell you a beer. He will pull you a beer, give it to you, and then essentially you're done. Whereas the way we do things, we know uh, a lot of our regular customers very well. We had chats. We talk to them on a regular basis. We have chats with them. We can go turn around and say, well, happy birthday. As I remember, it was your birthday. Uh, or um, you end up running what we've done, various different things called like swap shop, where we say, if you make something, bring it in and swap it with the other customers who make things. Mm. Well, like and, food, food, you mean? Yeah, food yeah. or uh, frames or whittled spoons or, oh, right. okay. or yeah, yeah. Uh, all that kind of stuff. Amazing. So you, you talked on your website about uh, creating a third space in your venue. Like, how do you go about creating that kind of vibe? I mean, especially okay. if, like, you know, I, don't, I mean, I don't know what it's like in Bath, but like, you get, if you get very different crowds inhabiting one space, that can be. Like, how do you hold that tension together? You know, where you've got a family in one corner and a hen party in the other, drinking Prosecco or whatever. Okay, I mean, it's sort of, first of all, you, you use one of my favourite favorite phrases there or favourite concepts there, the third space. Um, there's been a lot of work done by academics over the years talking about essentially the three spaces we inhabit as humans. Yeah, We live at home and we work at work. And at home, you have your family life, you've got your partner, maybe your kids. Uh, at work, you've got your colleagues. But where do you actually live your life in any of that? Mm. And in, if we rewind again back to the Victorian period, uh, the public house was a big part of that. Um, or the public commons where you'd go for a walk and uh, you would meet people and flaneur in a way. Um, but if there's been a systematic destruction of that over the years as we privatized spaces and commercialized them. And you look at the contemporary high street and everything and all of those spaces have now become transactional. You go yep. to Starbucks, you buy a cup of coffee, you sit at your table on your own and then you leave or you go to the supermarket, you put your items in the trolley, you beat them through the beat machine and then uh, you walk out again. It's very much about you interacting with, with the space on your own and then leaving. Mm. There's very little space for you to actually kind of interact as a person with other human beings that are not essentially enforced upon you. Yeah. It's interesting what you should say about how you reference Starbucks in that because it's, um, I can't remember the guy that set up Starbucks, but I know in, in his book he talks about the third space and how Starbucks is always meant to be like that, that occupying that third space, whereas it's, it's become in its corporate nature it's become the very thing that it set out not to be a little bit like brew dog you know that they, they yeah, become yes. exactly what they set out not to be i mean i think that's because, and again this is the reason why we like dealing with independence is that the, the, the very actress the very aspect of you scaling up reduces that personal input mm. so i as the owner of a small business can interact with you across my bar yep um, but as soon as I take on a, a second space, I'm not stood behind both of those bars. Yep. So I, uh, once I've got two businesses, I can know the guy that stands behind the other bar really well, and I can say this is how we want to do things and show him how to do it, but then you make it 10 bars, and I can't interact with every single one of those new hires in each of the spaces. Yeah. So you then have to write a rule book of how you interact with that, and you've never seen how I want to do it. Mm. And then you extend that again, and then you've got, let's say, 100 uh, hundred bars and you've it, any aspect and intention of what me as the original person wanted is now codified into a set of rules enforced by others and then managed by others well, effectively it becomes systemized doesn't it yes exactly um and essentially you're hiring someone to fill a hole in an organizational chart rather than someone that's dedicated to your vision hmm. just Shooting from the hip with this question then, do, do you think in some ways then that, I mean, I don't like the term craft beer. I use it because it, it, people understand what I mean by it. 
you know, it's we not... act we actively try and avoid it. it but, uh, we're we're an, we're an independent pub. We are not a craft beer bar. We're an independent <laughs> pub. But do, do do you think that when the I'll call them the new wave of breweries rather than craft brewers, where the new wave of breweries again, not mentioning any names, but they they grow bigger and bigger. Um, you know, obviously they've got to then systemize their business and everything. Um, where where does it stop being quote unquote craft? If 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 it's if you're losing that independent spirit, that kind of personalization, I think you do stop being. I think you stop doing because stop being independent and small. I mean, there's a number of people that we've stopped stocking because they have um, uh, they they've sold out. So do do you think to, that to, the, to use a pejorative term? I mean, I don't mean that they've actually sold out as individuals, yeah, yeah. but they've they've sold their company up the line so they know that the manager of i don't know a, let's say someone that's putting out um 500,000 or 50,000 barrels a year sells his company he then becomes a cog in a very large organization mm. and essentially his commitment to the large larger thing a larger company is to sell more and more product it's not to service his customers mm. his customer now is the large organization but do do you think that for may, maybe t- taking away some of the sort of macro owned quote unquote craft breweries as it were or brands do do you think the idea of of craft beer then is is a bit of a myth if you know because it, i think people particularly when it was kind of imported from the USA where it was all about you know they just had essentially big beer and light lager and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden it's kind of like these focal community points in the community. Um, at some point, like we say, you've got to, you're going to end up systemizing your business and you're going to lose that personal touch, even, even on a sort of independent brewery, but on, on a, on a mid scale, because it's just the nature of getting bigger deal, you know, dealing with larger chains of distribution and so on. Do, do you think, that it's the idea of quote unquote craft beer is a bit of a myth then or okay so we need to, to sort of disambiguate two things you've got craft beer the product mm. uh, which is very hoppy very vibrant really quite interesting and innovative combining I don't know banana with Berliner Weisser and coming up with a banana Weisser or whatever whatever crazy <laughs> brand you're coming up with um, that's that that's craft beer but craft beer is also small independent companies Mm. Uh, it's it, it's about having a relationship with a, uh, someone who's trying to sell you beer. So in some aspects, the beer product, if a larger organization is going out and making that, they are still making craft beer, yeah. but they are no longer, quote, air quotes, craft beer. Yeah, that makes sense. So you said in your message when you, when you um, contacted me um, that one of the things you try and avoid there are, quote, unquote, craft beer bros. I was, oh yes. Well, how would you describe an atypical craft beer bro? Okay, there's okay. There's several kinds of craft beer bros. So you've got you, you've got the list. You've got the list ticker, who um, must have one of everything, mm. um, and gets disappointed that you haven't changed your list on a day to day basis, or you don't have a brand new, an entirely brand new fridge of beers for him to taste the second day he's come in in a row. So um, essentially people who want to be the first to try something on rate beer or, or the person with the most amount of different kinds of beer on rate beer mm. or essentially the box stickers. Yeah. You've got a different type of craft beer bro who is I want the most. So it's I want the bitterest. I want the sourest. I want the um, the strongest. I want the all of that sort of thing. So essentially people who are who turn their noses up at say a sort of traditional bitter because yeah. it isn't the most whatever it is. Mm. It can be a fantastically created 4% pale ale, but because it isn't the rarest, it isn't the bitterest, it isn't the sourest, they're going to sneer at it or turn it down or whatever else. Do you think that there's, when you go on Twitter and social media and stuff, do, do you think that there's, it's a bit of an echo chamber as far as that kind of thing is concerned in that it, it can, because I, I know from when, I was running a brewery, it kind of felt a little bit like, oh, some of our beers are too standard, as it were, even though they were really flavoursome and won awards. Um, like, it, the, do, do you think that it, because of the, the people you just described are so vocal on social media, you can fall into the trap as a, you know, whether it's running a bar thinking, oh, I need to stock that, or whether you're a brewer thinking, I need to brew that, getting into the trap of being like, oh, I need, I need to brew that um, imperial pilsner 
infused with juniper berries fermented in squirrels? Well, I've always joked that I was going to... Um... Uh, I was going to brew a beer called an Imperial Session IPA, where uh, it's just an IPA, but you've just put a name on it. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking that. <laughs> um, so yeah, the Imperial Session IPA. But the um, with all of that, uh, you, if you remember how, uh, I mean, another f- f- phrase we use around here is called hype juice. Mm. So something is so. I mean, we actually got stung in the early days of when we opened. We were one of the few breweries that, uh, sorry, few independent pubs that had uh, Cloudwater um, uh, version two and version three on keg. Right. Um, uh, but on and we put it out social media. We were very proud. We cut our margins to make it at a quasi affordable price. And the amount of grief we got from the local community because. As Essentially, we weren't selling it in pints, but if you added the two-thirds and one-third price up, it was coming to £9 a pint. Mm. And everyone piled on going, uh, who not from the craft community, £9 a pint, rip-off written, blah, 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 blah. The Cloudwater community then jumped on top of that and then started going off at the guys that were criticising about £9 a pint. And it's this sort of really kind of bizarre sort of tribalism in some of this stuff that sort of some people think that beer should be £2.65 a pint because that's what I've always paid. Mm. And there's other people going, well, I'm going to be fiercely loyal to my, um, to my brand that I've identified with, and which in that case it was Cloudwater. Yeah. But again, the reason why I brought up Cloudwater is that at that point, Cloudwater was really hip. It was really cool. And now we're kind of three years on and you've got Cloudwater, but Cloudwater aren't in that same space as of hype juice. Yeah. Um, they, they sort of become fairly mainstay. Um, they're still producing amazing beers, but it's now Omnipolo or, or um, a very left-handed giant or various different other people that are today's really cool people. But in two years time, it'll be someone else. Well, it's the, it's so, the cool curve, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It, it, and you can't chase that curve. Mm. I mean, there's always going to be unicorn beers that are really kind of hip and trendy, but they're hip and trendy for today. You've got other you've got other breweries knocking out amazing beers that have been doing it for for, for thirty years. Yeah. I mean, you've got I'm just trying to think like say Buxton, or you've got very sort of traditional brewery. I mean, again, it depends on how you want to run your business and mm-hmm. what you think you're exit strategy is if yeah so multinationals buying out um uh trendy breweries i mean in the uk you've had beaver town with a 50 percent buyout you've got magic rock having just um uh gone through its various different business pieces there are other rumors going around in the states that's sort of stopped stopped happening and in uh the uk i think it'll stop stop happening over the next year or so mm. uh, so you as a brewer you've got to decide essentially what your exit strategy is, or if you have an exit strategy, if you're perfectly happy making beer um, and you're making a good living out of it, then do what you do well. Don't don't feel the need that you have to constantly expand. Yeah. Find a point that you're happy. It's, it's funny you should say that. Cause, I mean, um... for example, I mean, I mean, the Colonel came to mind. I mean, yeah. you've got an amazing brewery who are not pushing themselves for buyout. Evan's really happy with where he's at. Uh, it's sometimes very hard to get his beers, but when you do find it, you're like, hooray, I found, yeah. I found some kernel. Um, and as from what I can tell, he's really happy being the size he is. He's making the beers he wants to do, doesn't have any problem selling his beers. But he also doesn't have this thing that he, he wants to kind of get bought out by AB and Bev and make his 500 million pounds by selling his brewery off. He's happy being a brewer. Mm. How much longevity do you see in like the micropub or new wave bar sector? Because I, I, there's obviously been this huge explosion of, of breweries and, and and other sort of food traders is always a, oh, a classic example. These people are like, oh, I bought a pizza oven, or I bought a um, what are the, those stainless rocket caravan things called um, a rocket ship. Is that what it's called? Yeah, um, I, I don't know. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, um, but yes, I know. I totally get. I, I totally get. I think as long as long as people have got energy. And your first year is always going to be really exciting. Yeah. And your second year is going to be a bit of a slog. And year three is where the test is because yeah. you've gone through the exciting bits. You've gone through the, the sort of – you're just into the slog. And essentially running a business is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Yeah. And whilst being out selling pizzas on the street is amazing and you're really excited about it by year one, it's year three and it's raining and it's January and you're still stood in the street selling pizzas – 
you're going, am I actually enjoying this anymore? You, 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 go, you go a bit further and you say, well, actually, I want to expand. So I want to go and get a building so I'm not stood out in the street. But with that comes overhead. So mm. you've got to go, well, where am I, can I actively sell £10,000 worth of pizza a month out of a building to, so I can pay my rent and my insurance and all the rest of it? Yeah. And essentially, if you see the, the scrappy early days as essentially a beta test or the minimum viable product, yeah. and then you when, when you get into a building, it's your, it's your startup. Mm. I, um, I know loads of people who've you know, done the food thing I was just burnt out after several years because it's just like it's an, it's another weekend uh you know I I I set it all up I took 30 quid etc etc I mean like if you intend to go the distance with something like that like what rhythms or even like with a bar like yourself you know what rhythms can you put in place to ensure that you do so uh you've got to very clearly demarcate your time so you've got time you're working and you've got time you're not working mm. um so we don't we 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 don't open Monday and Tuesday. So those that's our time off. And yeah. we try and avoid as much as we possibly can doing pub stuff during that time. Mm. I mean, we obviously have to do a bit of banking and a bit of account uh, accountancy and a bit of stock ordering, but we can carve out some space for us so we're not thinking about it. Yeah. Um, you also have to be kind of disciplined with your time. If you've got staff coming in, don't hover over their shoulders and micromanage them. Um, let them do their job. Mm. So when they're working, you're not. Do you disconnect from social media as well? Because that can be the temptation, can't it? Oh, I'll just have a... I don't, I don't use Twitter. Right. Um, Emma does Twitter. And apart from the business side of things, Emma doesn't use Twitter a huge amount. Um, I'm not particularly involved with Facebook other than sort of various different other bits and pieces. I mean, we, we, push, it, we push out our content there. We use it as a broadcast mechanism. But I'm not particularly interested in what comes back. And it's not to say that I don't appreciate people interacting with social media and how it builds brands and all the rest of it. But if I've got time that I have free, which is increasingly rare these days as I'm building a brewery, um, I don't want to spend it with kind of uh, uh, in spats on, on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, a, a, an old friend of mine said, uh, you, this was in the very early days of Twitter. You, what you have to remember is that using Twitter is like being beaten to death by croutons. People <laughs> flicking little nuggets of, of dried material at you kind of every second and you're eventually kind of so worn down by these sort of little nuggets that are hitting you that you just go ah that's hilarious it'd be oh, that's so funny <laughs> um you you were saying about uh, building a brewery why don't you touch upon that for our listeners so um the the, the when we bought this place, it had to, uh, well. Let's rewind it, and, and we'll get to the brewery in a, in, a, in a minute. Essentially, when we left London and we quit out of our day jobs, we had the plan that we wanted to go and buy a pub. So we built a business model that was to go and buy a country pub on um, a number of acres, let's say ten acres, that we could put some quasi-permanent festival infrastructure on, and have micro festivals basically every weekend over the summer. Mm. That's very obviously. Not what we did. Um, so um, we saw 40 plus country pubs within the area that we were looking at, which was sort of essentially 40 minutes radius of Bath, so Bath and Bristol. Uh, and we must have seen 40 or 50 properties, all of which were rubbish. Mm. I mean, literally, would ne- you would never get your money back uh, on the amount of investment that you had to do into them, the amount of community that work you had to put into them so essentially you had to build a business model for each of them i i was a very keen home brewer and would be a very keen home brewer now but i just don't get the time so the idea was always to have a brewery in the mix somewhere so when we saw this place come up in the state that it was in we had the space which is an old skittle alley out the back of the building that we can put a brewery into so that was that that was the plan from the beginning essentially was once once we got up and running um we built the brewery and we're in the we're in the middle of that at the moment fantastic uh, it's not a giant brewery we're just we're, we're just putting a uh, half barrel kit in at the beginning but i'm scaling it for two and a half if if we decide to scale up but the other thing is that it again with 
business, you need to be flexible in what you're doing. Um, a, a brewery at the back of the pub becomes a bit of a nightmare if we decide to, decide to scale the brewery any further because you've got your logistics of material in, water in, electricity in, and then you've got your logistics of uh, beer out, waste out, and, um, and waste water out. And all of that comes within the aspect of everything has to come through the pub to get to the skittle alley. So manual handling becomes an issue yeah. once you scale past a certain point. So if you see the brewery kind of more as a sort of pilot aspect of something we may do further along the line, if it makes sense to go and build a brewery in an industrial unit, we'll do that. Or if it makes sense, we'll go and cuckoo brew um, uh, to, to do stuff at that point as well. So it's more of a kind of, for want of a better word, test kitchen to sell by us and uh, a couple of friends. Um, than a full-scale production brewery at, at this point. Yeah, amazing. So l last question then, w where do you see the drinks industry as a whole heading over the next five years? I mean, as, there's an ever-increasing awareness of mindful drinking, uh, people drinking like low-alcohol beers and, and just drinking less. Uh, wh where do you see it all heading? Well, it's, it's, it's funny, funny you talk about low-alcohol beers. Uh, Johnny Clayton, the guy who writes all the recipes for Big Drop, mm. who are the sort of standout kind of low-alcohol beers, um, was actually w w used to work for us. He oh, was stood behind, our, stood behind our bar when he was writing the recipes for Big Drop. So um, we're, we're sort of we're very much kind of aware of that space and where things are going and all the rest of it. We're also, we also do a lot of cocktails with Seedlip and various different other people on the low-alcohol spirit side. I think... Alcohol consumption varies over time, and it also kind of has historical precedent depending on where the economic cycle is and where people's levels of kind of as a societal depression goes. Um, there are also kind of other political factors that weigh in as well, and you've got the sort of prohibitionists uh, who are pushing a, a, a low alcohol agenda um, as part of it, and there is... Um, shall we say that there's, there's this pressure from on high and some people who are uh, teetotalers and people quit drinking for a number of reasons, but a number of teetotalers quit drinking because they have to and essentially see all alcohol as a negative aspect in society. Essentially one of the more bigger things I'm worried about on a long-term basis is if we legalize marijuana in this country. Yeah. Well, that's happening um, in the States, isn't it? it it's happening in the States and you're actually starting to see the drop of craft beer sales in the States. I don't know whether anyone's ever directly appropriated that to uh, uh, pot sales, but overall drink, uh, booze sales are down in the States by a reasonable percentage. Uh, that also that correlates with the timing of, of marijuana uh, legalization. So um, People only have a finite amount of recreational time. Yeah. And people go, uh, uh, say a new pub opens in Bath, people go, oh, are you worried that, that you've got a new competitor? And I say, actually, no, our biggest competitor is people staying at home and watching Netflix uh, with a bottle of wine they've stuck in in their trolley from the supermarket. Yeah, yeah, for sure. People people say, I'll have a bottle of wine and, and, and watch Netflix rather than come out and pay our prices and use our space. So... Mm. The, the the threat, I think, from the legalization of marijuana is probably higher because people are going to stay at home and watch cartoons and smoke pot rather than be out at the pub. Mm. Do you think that cannabis will get legalized in the UK? I think, depending on uh, what happens with Brexit, yes, I think it, I think it may do. Um, I think if we Brexit, um, rather than when we Brexit, as I think it's now it's certainly, it's certainly getting to a point where... Um, the sands of this, this, how we mechanically Brexit is going to be quite difficult. Mm. But if we if we do Brexit, the government is going to need as much much tax revenue as it can get. Yeah. So uh, legalising pot is an easy win there. Wow. Um, I think there's enough pressure from within the UK that you could actually say we could legalise it today, but there's just no political will. Yeah to do that it's like we're still stuck in the won't someone think of the children daily mail hand-wringing phase but if there was pressure from elsewhere i.e we need the tax revenue it would become a no-brainer yeah maybe you'll see like a, uh, a gipa well, <laughs> yes maybe i mean there's already cbd ipas uh, out there 
you know, the uh, yeah, CBD, yeah. you yeah. know, the uh, non-cannabis. So there's already people brewing CBD beers. Um, I don't know what the legality of that is now that the European Union have, have decided that it's a novel compound. So you can't make health claims about it anymore, yeah. uh, about, about CBD. Um, but as far as I can, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, CBD is pretty unpleasant as a taste. What quite why you'd want to add it to a beer, I don't know. Um, <laughs> But from what I from what I've been told, not not that I've ever experienced this, that drinking and pot together don't really go too well. Um, I can say from my late teens so and early twenties, that is a very accurate assessment. <laughs> so, so the idea of combining both uppers and downers in the same space doesn't really kind of add to my confidence. Yeah, fair enough. Well, well, thank you for being on the podcast today, Michael. Um, I've, I found it really interesting hearing about um, your experience. Just actually, just, just one last little question: what, What's the funniest story you've got from behind your bar? Funniest story? I'm just trying to think. Because um, I'm sure you got so many. Oh yes, I mean, it, it's it's not funny. It's kind of it's kind of bloody weird. I'll tell you. I'll tell you this. So this was. Um, uh, at this one point, someone came bursting through the door with a dead dog in their arms, um, going, what do I do with this? <laughs> because we're on a main road and the dog had been run over. So they came to the pub to try and solve the, uh, solve, solve the problem with the dead the dog. Riddle. Yeah. Oh my goodness. What, what did they do with it? <laughs> well, when we ended up closing the pub, we, this was at like 10 to 10 to midnight. So I actually ended up putting the dog in the back of the car and driving up to the 24 hour, uh, uh, hospital here in Bath, um, who they then disposed of the said dead dog. Goodness. It must be weird when you're driving, doing that, thinking like, why, how the hell am I doing this? How did I end up here doing this? <laughs> but, uh, Bill. Every day, every day is different in the pub game. And if it wasn't, you get bored. Um, you get people who are really dedicated to being in, in the industry and it, they do it because every day is different. I mean, some days you've got, uh, you're five, you've got five people still at the bar, uh, complaining about their day and their gardening. And other days you've, uh, uh, you've got, you've got really great people coming in to talk about what they've really achieved today. And again, it's about talking, you spend all your time talking and if you don't like talking don't get into the pub game absolutely brill well thanks for being on the podcast today um where can people find out about chaps one and, and pay you a visit yeah uh we're in uh we're in bath we're on the london road so we're not in the middle of town so we're uh slightly out of town heading out towards bristol we're opposite the morrisons um uh, online uh just give us a google and you'll find us. There you go. Uh, all our social media stuff and our webpage and all the rest of it. Awesome. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Nick. Today's episode of the Hot Board Podcast was proudly sponsored by Brew Broker, the marketplace for the brewing industry. With over 500 traders already on board, Brew Broker will find you buyers for your spare capacity or the perfect brewery to create, contract, or white label a beer. Join today for free at brewbroker.com. That's spelled B R E W. B-R-O-K-E-R.com. Create a supplier profile to fill capacity or sign up as a buyer to start your tender with our easy-to-use platform. Thanks for tuning in to the Hot Four podcast this week. Don't forget, we're here to help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. So hit the subscribe button for more insights into the beer industry. Connect with us at hotforward.beer or through our social media channels at hotforwardbeers. Until next time, cheers. Right, so